Hi, and welcome to the House Hack Podcast. An exploration of modern work and how young professionals and businesses can work together in pursuit of the careers of tomorrow. Ryan and Charlie here. We're so glad you could join us. Let's get into it. All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the House Hack Podcast. Fantastic to have you joining us today. Our guest today is Jimmy Hosang. Jimmy, good to see you. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you guys? Not bad. Not bad. So, Jimmy, you are the CEO of the Modular Analytics Company, an artificial intelligence and machine learning solutions provider, and you help people make decisions better. You're a self-taught programmer. You've built a career at the crossroads of people and data with a clear vision to change the way that data science is understood and applied. So hopefully that's big you up enough and you're excited to get into it, I hope too. Yeah, when you put all those words together, it sounds very pretentious, but yeah. <laughs> that is it. That's it. That's why we have it at the outset. That's exactly <laughs> it. And uh, just to note as well, you can find TMAC online at tmac.ai and Jimmy on LinkedIn as well. So Jimmy, starting off, what does TMAC do in your own words? TMAC is a... I think he's a proudly different player within the AI machine learning uh, market. And the idea and the notion that it's not about the tech, but it's around the tech and the people interacting with each other, I think is very, very important for us. Um, I've worked in data science and analytics for 12 years, and uh, I was always left feeling on all of the projects that I worked on, that they were over-promised and under-delivered. And, and um, invariably, the timescales for everything always got pushed back and back and back. And I had a little bit of a kind of crisis of confidence, probably around 2017, which was a little bit like, what does it all mean? Because being involved in so many projects that most of them failed, um, it was a little bit kind of disheartening. Um, and then when I came back and I started to take stock of the company, so, sorry, to take stock of my, my career, I started to understand that some of these challenges were a feature, not a bug. And then set about coming up with a methodology where we could fix those types of problems. And th that methodology is uh, modular analytics, which is around short pieces of work that are deployed quickly and iteratively provide value and doing so in a way that is uh, cognitively uh, trustworthy. So not over-promising, not under-delivering and building trust with our clients throughout the process. No, I love that. And I think I think proudly different really sums, sums you guys up. But to, to take it back a little bit, my next question is, is really about where it all, all began. So with, with that degree in media, performing arts, how did you then get to working working with data? That's a good question. I think you've got to make your decisions very early. So I might get the timelines a bit wrong, but I think at 14 years old, you're, you're choosing what you're doing for your GCSEs. And then what you do for your GCSEs, it follows on that you, you'll probably do something like that for your A-levels. And then from your A-levels, you, you go to university. Um, and so I think that as a small child, I don't think I was naturally outgoing, but I was, I kind of grew into becoming um, an outgoing person. My, my mother used to work on the markets. She was a salesperson. She sold clothes on the markets. And so I'm watching her like, you know, sell and perform every day. Um, yeah, yeah. 
quite interesting. And then, so I, it felt quite natural for me to go into the arts and um, I had to make that decision quite early. However, by the time I got to sort of 21 years old, I did feel as though, and I, and I don't want, wish for this to sound rude to anybody who like has got an arts degree or has worked in the arts, but I felt like I didn't have what I wanted out of out of my education. Um, and I felt like I wanted to do more. Um, and so I went through my early twenties kind of, you know, working in performing arts. I was doing plays and things and I'm working behind bars. And it was only when I started to take more of an interest in um, something that I'd already always been naturally good at, which is my, with which was maths. I kind of sailed through up from the, from a maths perspective and I didn't do maths because it was, it was hard. And so I thought I'd do media studies instead, which, you know, some of my friends who've got media qualifications uh, will be uh, throwing daggers at me. And so I started to take an interest in um, started to take an interest in numbers when I was managing a, managing some bars, and it was interesting around like the mix of mix through which different product lines could change your overall gross profit. Um, if, I'll tell you a really quick story. Um, so what makes pubs lots of money is selling gin and tonics. So the reason why everybody sells gin and tonics nowadays is because a gin, a spirit and a mixer makes you more money than a pint of beer. So everybody promoted gin and tonics. I remember going on courses, which was like, how do you do, how do, you do a gin and tonic? So, so the bar that I was the assistant manager at, we effectively changed all of our kind of mix and we started to push gin and tonics. Gross profits went up. Um, and then um, cider came bottled cider, Magnus, and um, everybody started drinking Magnus instead of gin and tonics, and our gross profits went down. So we were selling more Magnus than what you'd, you'd, you could ever sell one summer, and our gross profits went down, and it's because, um, because the mix had changed, and that's what got me the idea that this is something that's really interesting around how you can change people's behavior, how we can, you can use data to make decisions and how like markets move. And that's how I started to get interested in, in uh, analysis. Nice. So it's kind of the psychology combined with almost that entrepreneurial spirit of trying the most out of a situation as well in that back of the bar assistant manager role, which is really, really interesting. And how did that kind of lean into then handling, visualizing data and seeing it in one way and the impact is one thing, but then, self-teaching yourself programming is another because you said your background you didn't like the fact that you'd or you hadn't loved doing maths at school but then even now you're you're kind of faced with that data visualization aspect and trying to understand trends is that what led you down the self-learning programming path or was it something else entirely so i think so there was a sense that i would never be a good actor and i wouldn't achieve what i wanted to achieve within that field and then there was a sense that I was kind of drifting through like, you know, job to job. And I wasn't really, um, I wasn't really making the most of my life really. Um, and, and I think that's important. Like, you know, I'm not a religious person. I think you're here for now to use a biblical like description, but you're here for like three score years and 10 and you've got to make the most of it. And I was like, well, if I've got 50 more years to go, like, um, how do I make the most of it? That was one. And then ultimately it was, I had to support my family. So my 
um, in my mid twenties, my daughter was born, and I had to I had to think about how I could um, how I could create a create a, a life for her and create a support system for her, and that was yeah. that was really important too. And I suppose like you know necessities, the mother of invention, those three things kind of coming together is what made me think around programming and how to stop wasting certain parts of my life doing things that were non-value add and to devote those to to like the pursuit of doing one thing moderately well nice and is that the thing that led you down the path would you say your why behind starting a business and then even now taking it to scale like that reason that necessity to go and revive the family is that still a core driver for what you do or is it combined in other elements of supporting say your wider family your team now as well that's an interesting question. What's my why? I think, I think now, let me go back. So 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I needed to start a path to, to get that. And so I effectively like kind of ground out, ground out a career. I ground out a career trying to teach myself how to program. I ground out my first job and, um, I, I started to then enjoy the grind and enjoy, um, in, enjoy conflict is the wrong word, but putting myself up against like difficult situations and overcoming them. And now that is as much a part of me as anything else. So it's very hard to say like what my, why yeah. apart from my, um, my ambition to drive things forward and to push things forward. Um, it's funny, like I was talking to my wife about when, you know, when my career is over and, and retirement and she kind of said, you'll never retire, never ever. And, and it's true, like now, like before, like when I was in my kind of my mid twenties to the person that I am now, like there's many things that are the same, but there's so much that's different and it is that like the relentless kind of push to improve things improve things for clients improve things for um for the people who work for tmac um and i've always tried to improve the lives of like all of my the guys who've worked for me or worked with me hopefully and improve the life of um the life for my family as well nice and then with that that big goal, that center of improvement and the core of what you do, almost liking a challenge. Is there any moment in which you'll realize that you've achieved the end goal of an improvement milestone you're looking for or a kind of a measurement of success with that? Or is it always on to the next thing? I think it's always on to the next thing. So I think in, in so many aspects of my life, uh, I think I could look back and, and say I've been very successful. Um, but there's so much um, of my life which I feel as though like can be improved upon, and that's that's to, for for me personally. Like for me as a person, I feel as though there's a lot that I can improve upon, and I think it's very much like sport. The greatest sports people are able to not focus too much on the past and not focus too much on the future, and they keep themselves in a moment. And I think that's why kind of good entrepreneurs and I put myself loosely in that bracket I think that's how they 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 see life it's about kind of keeping yourself in a moment because you know 
life is a wheel. You know, when, you, when you're on the way up, you can be on the way down. And when you're on the way down, you can be on the way up. And it's around centering yourself around that kind of ethos and not thinking too far ahead or, or behind, I think is important. Yeah. So you mentioned that relentlessness, that drive, that ambition. As you have grown and as TMAC has grown, how have you adapted yourself to the needs of that role as a, as a leader, as, as the organisation has grown? I don't think that necessarily I've, I'm, I'm a great leader. or I don't think I've, I was born a great leader. Certainly not when I was, when I was young. I don't think I had particular uh, leadership qualities. I was like gobber. Um, but then a lot of my a lot of my friends are are really gobby as well. Yeah. So I was probably like slightly more gobby than the most gobby other gobby people. But I wouldn't have put myself down as a down as a leader. And I think a lot of my natural traits aren't necessarily prone to to the qualities that you'd necessarily deem around leadership. I think I can be relatively confrontational about the things I can be I'm passionate about but I'm not really I'm not really that way inclined I think I'm a bit soft really in like loads of aspects of my life um like Lauren Lauren my wife always um always makes fun of me because I'm, I always cry at Disney movies that we're watching all the time yeah. I, don't, I don't know necessarily if I've got like this this in, internal strength um and um and I think you guys know, you know, we've we've spoken we've spoken quite a lot before. I do have a tendency to, I think maybe over communicate. So I just speak what's on my mind all of the time. Mm. Um, and from where we were in 2018, where there was just me, and there was me and Sean, and then very quickly after there was George and Ruse. Kind of, you know, we started talking. Um, like having to having to adapt where you've got a small group of people who effectively have been kind of we all work together because we know what each other's flaws and we and we solve for those flaws to then becoming a company that's you know getting done towards 20 25 30 people you have to adapt your principles because it's not always it's not always the same where i can just speak my mind all of the time have to just process information and then and then think more about the right way to communicate that back. I think that has been a, a real challenge. So I think, you know, as a leader of a, of a company that is growing quickly, I think communication is important. And that communication is mainly around, you know, giving everybody a shared vision and then getting everybody to corral around that vision and drive that vision forward. Yeah, it's interesting because um, hear, hearing you talk about like I don't think there is necessarily that one leader that everyone needs to share the traits of, like that kind of archetype. I think everyone's personal styles is something that they will they will draw from. But it's interesting to hear about that adaptation as you've grown of almost reining yourself in at times. Um, but what I'd, what I'd ask is a as a kind of follow up to that. Is there anything in terms of your lessons with TMAC up to now that maybe you used to take for granted, but but don't anymore now you've got that benefit of, of hindsight? I'll probably say that I, I used to take my, my friends for granted, like a lot. And 
when you're in very stressful situations all of the time, um, I think it's good to um, it, it's good to have people who keep you grounded. Like I, I feel as though I'm in like a really, really strange world where, you know, I've done a lot of bad analysis and I'm, not everything that I've touched has turned to mm. gold. A lot of it has turned to whatever. <laughs> whatever <you want> to <laughs> the <go>. other thing. <laughs> yeah, the other thing. And now, like, I'm talking to you guys in the a, in a podcast and, you know, people people contact me and they're, they're interested in my opinion. Um, sometimes that can, you can definitely run away from yourself. And so I think having friends who keep you grounded and telling you, yeah, that... Um, that you might not be as uh, as much of a big shot as you think, not in those words, but in their own inimitable way is um, is really important. And then I think the last 12 months, and I think this is probably for everybody, like your health, like your health is important and it's something that you take for granted. And, you know, I've got, I've got three children, um, the youngest is only four months old and has been born kind of in the pandemic. Um, and anybody who knows me, like we met, in fact, you know, we met in the pandemic, um, that uh, T-Mac and the house hat guys, but I'm not a person who particularly looks after themselves. So like, uh, you know, I drink a lot, occasionally have a cigarette um, when I'm drinking and I drink a lot <laughs> anyway. Um, and um, I think the, the pandemic has shown shone a light onto um, onto health being a, a really important part of your life. So I think those are the things as the world starts to open up. Um, I want to um, I want to spend more time with my friends and my, and my and my family, and um, and then I want to get on on top of my health and maybe stamp out some of the more uh, more unhealthy parts of my uh, personality. Nice. Yeah. No, I think that's definitely a learning a lot of us can take from the last year even if it's not something that's directly impacts yourself to say if you haven't caught COVID or no one around you has you've seen the impact on a more wider scale so very much realizing the health is a really important aspect as well but just to take it back a second to that previous discussion point on being a leader and really the way in which it shaped your style within TMAC probably to take that back to its core element to you like what does being a leader actually mean I think that being a leader is around the way in which you the, the way in which you portray yourself and the way in which you act in the business in order that other people within the organization or externally like take the lead. So and, and I think that's that's kind of the the hardest the hardest element of it because it's it because it's my business and it's my baby. Um I do feel there's some things that's that's very easy. Like you know, I I feel more passionately about you know my business than you know somebody that I've employed, and I shouldn't expect those guys to like feel as passionately about it. Mm. However, I think the fun bits of it, you know, like you know speaking to you guys or the uh, having a sales call and stuff like that, that's that's just one side of it. I think the the hard part is just putting yourself um, in front of your um, your people and protecting your people every single day. So, you know, making sure that you, you, you're making the sales so you can put the money on the table. 
um, making sure making sure that you're the person who's attending the difficult conversations or going with them with a, to a client, doing like the hard and dirty things all of the time. That's what I believe is the, the most important part because if people can see that you're not only doing all the nice things where you know you, you're, you're going to the client calls and you, or when the world opens up, you're going and having a drink. If people see you doing the dirty things and you're willing to, to do the hard things and protect them um, in, a, in the moments that they need it, then I think that um, resonates, um, resonates with them about what a leader should be. And it's somebody who, who takes care of other people. Yeah, I think the leading by example there from what you're saying is really, really clear as well of doing that hard work and having people follow you rather than be told what to do as well. So having that source of inspiration through your actions rather than necessarily through your words. And as a leader, if you have certain strengths and certain weaknesses that you know, and say one of the weaknesses is, I find it really difficult, say, to go and do a sales call not necessarily personally myself, but say if someone did, then would it be okay as a leader to then have someone do it for them, even though it's something that's hard and difficult and they should lead first with, or should they just play to their strengths or should they learn to get better at that weakness so they can then lead by example rather than delegation? It's a good, good question. It is, I believe, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this wrong, but it's um, Jean Piaget. So... I, I think he was French or Belgian um, kind of um, uh, philosopher and professor who uh, did some quite early work around um, around like learning and behaviours. And I think it was Piaget that said that um, you only improve if you're set like challenging goals and challenging objectives but they can't be so challenging that you're completely out of debt, out of your depth, because you'll just you'll just lose confidence. So you've got to do this form of incrementalism where everybody is being stretched, but not stretched so much that they snap. And it's understanding the points where people will snap. Like that's that's really what you're doing. And where, the points where people will snap, like stepping in and be either building a bridge for them or um, giving them a life raft, those are the points that are really important. I think, you know, talk, talking about myself is quite strange, but like, I think the guys who, um, who have, who've worked with me and who work with me, work with me now will say that I probably give them like a lot of leeway to go and do their own thing. Like I'm not somebody who just like wraps my arms around people. I think people have got to be self-motivated, self-started to do the do the important things themselves. But what I always did was like when they were under fire, I'd stand in front of bullets for them um, and make sure that they when they when they were pushing themselves too hard and they were in danger of going over the edge, I stepped in and supported them. Yeah, and that sounds to me like a true leader and even you didn't call yourself a leader beforehand so that's pretty interesting that you would do that and it's something that you would continue to do but you don't necessarily see yourself as defined by that word what if yourself as a leader you know that this by putting yourself in the fire or by doing that thing you're going to snap your resilience will break what do you do then do you still do it because you have to that's what a leader does or do you stop give yourself a break 
and come back to it later on or delegate to someone else. Like if you know you're being stretched beyond capacity by doing something, is that where you just have to suck it up and do it? Or do you stop and really reassess if it's the right path? Um, I think I just suck it up. Like there's no, the beauty of running your own business is the book stops with you. And the horrible thing about running your own business is the book stops with you. So ultimately, when the going gets tough or when things are pretty horrible and when I feel as though I'm maybe at breaking point, uh, which, isn't ve- which isn't very often, um, but I think um, how I cope with it is um, by, just, by just looking at the people who, um, are, um, who I'm responsible for and taking a, taking a moment to to consider like you know what needs to be done to get to you know support those people to protect those people the lives the, the it's not just the the people who work for me but it's their husbands and wives and things like that and that's my motivation and i'm not saying that i'm unbreakable like everybody has a breaking point like my family see me breaking uh, <laughs> breaking point all the time and i i am like easily to frustrate and um, and potentially anger especially when I'm when I'm coding because I'm not the best coder but I think ultimately like being accountable and being responsible feeling like the things you do matter stops you from stops you from breaking just really importantly there is um it's a bit of a horrible study but you know so I, I, I won't get into like the ethics of it but there was a study around dogs and what they did was they put dogs kind of in a pen and part of it was um, electric shock. And um, they, did various, uh, they did various kind of tests on these dogs. One of, the, one, of them, um, with one of the sets of the dogs, they had an electric shock. And then when the dog moved, the, uh, the electric shock stopped. And then with another set of dogs, they did an electric shock, but the electric shock didn't stop. And the results of that, I'm probably murdering this, but the results of that was was quite interesting because then what they did was they got the two sets of dogs and they put them in a pen where um, they had to jump over a a fence uh, to get to kind of a a state where it wasn't an electric shock. What happened was the the dogs that when they moved, the, the shock stopped, immediately started moving when the electric shock happened and jumped over the fence. But the dogs mm. that hadn't that had constantly been shocked just sat there and stayed in pain. What this study is called is around learned helplessness. So if you've always had pain all of your life and you don't ever see that there's a way to get out of this painful situation that you're in, then you just stand there like crippled and in pain. Whereas even if you've had some moments, some wins in your life that you can hang on to, you can then, you you feel like you can do something about it. And you feel like you can, even if you're in pain now, you can, you can make yourself into a state where there's not gonna be that pain. I think is I think it's interesting, like the, there's, there's probably differences in personality types and gender and stuff like that around it. And, and I think, men in particular like think that they can just fix a problem like there's, there's no problem that can't be fixed and sometimes you can't fix problems um 
and I'm wondering whether or not like it's that's that part of part of my issue. But I always feel like as bad as it gets, or as you know, if I'm at 250, 300% of capacity, I always feel like I can do something about it. And um and so that's why that's why I'm I, yeah, I don't really have a break. Like I, I, I actually, I actually say to my, I actually say to my wife, like she got annoyed at me. I don't like holidays because I feel like I'm not doing, I'm not doing something. And then, and then when I'm not doing something, you feel like the world's just coming to you rather than you're going to the world. Um, I've changed my tact on that. Yeah, I've changed my communication strategy. <laughs> we might have a holiday this year when everything opens up. Nice. Nice, but looking forward to that. But it, it's super interesting listening to that example of that study because I think it probably speaks to something that's often cited or you know spoken about in leadership and management conversation, and, and that's how far a leader is is born or, or shaped, and to what extent that's something that you know is is it innate? Are some people naturally better leaders? Are people just made better leaders over time? You know, in your experience in trying to make your own teams leaders in their own ways or their own roles, but also in, in previous organizations, what's your take on, on that? Is it very much a, a learned thing being a leader or is it something that actually there is some innate spark there somewhere or is the classic answer? It's partway between the two. Yeah. Little column A, little column B. Why, why that question is difficult is because we associate like leadership at all. I associate leadership with the hierarchy that I've been working in. Like, so I've worked in, you know, banks, building societies, telcos, and I'm, and I think about the hierarchy. And now you've mentioned that to me, and I've started to through, see it through through that prism, and then rejected that. I probably I've probably seen a lot of leadership from people who aren't particularly my my boss or my boss's boss in fact in many cases I've seen a lack of leadership when it comes to that whereas if I like look at the types of people that I've worked with often like my peer group or even people who reported into me have offered me like the types of empathetic support and leadership in a crisis and the motivation to just get stuff done when it's required that those are true leadership qualities it's not uh, and perhaps it's just not the case that those leadership qualities like ultimately ultimately result in being promoted because there's other types of things that are important in that regard you know which is probably a lot more around nepotism and politics yeah and i don't and look i'll just be frank to you guys I don't mind nepotism and politics, <laughs> like, but um, but leadership and those qualities of about who you are as a person, who you know, to use a, a war analogy, who you want to be in the trenches with in a crisis, like that's sometimes different to the types of people that do well in organisations. I don't think that that's particularly controversial when you think about it. No, I don't, I don't think it is, and I think the the kind of politics and nepotism, you know, it definitely has its point in the conversation but picking up on on hierarchy i think is super interesting because people see hierarchy as a as a traditional mechanism i i feel but actually as a, as a still quite a young organization how, how does tmac approach 
hierarchy maybe with that different edge in terms of trying to encourage that leadership within everyone not just by title like what's the difference i think the difference is the types of the types of people that you employ i think initially it's the it's the types of people you employ we employ a group of people who are very are very challenging like they're challenging to me they'll challenge my opinions they'll challenge um they'll challenge each other's opinion mm. um and so the very the very confident self-starters who um who want to want to do well and want to push themselves now that creates a, that creates a different set of problems it creates a different set of problems in like how do you manage like a group of individuals that work work like mm. that and how do you create a camaraderie and a um a, a team spirit around like a group of what is essentially like quite strong-minded strong-willed people but i think there is just this single thread of even though we all speak our mind we were talking about it the other day somebody said oh well all of us are very good critical thinkers but i don't i don't necessarily think it's around critical thinking i think what we have is a group a relatively diverse group of people who even though they don't necessarily agree with the other person's like opinion or ideology they don't hold that against them and that's quite difficult in today's age because everybody's quite um um seems to be diametrically opposed on every single <laughs> every single matter now but yeah. even the things that we disagree on as a company within a company on projects or on on products or just just in general chit chat i think there's a, a single thread which is around us having each other's like trust and support and us not thinking that there's um an opinion that you may think is wrong necessarily defines you as a person defines the relationship yeah would you say that that's a a scale up thing you know is that going to maybe wean away in a, in a way as you grow and and that kind of culture is that going to be hard to keep as you as you get bigger like because that's kind of hierarchy meets hiring the right people meets creating the right culture it, is that going to stay the same obviously you hope that that it will what are you kind of thinking on that I think it'd be I think it'd be foolish to say that it's going to stick together because it's just impossible what we have right now is a small group of like-minded people like all pushing towards a, a shared goal and things will like have to change um they, they'll have to like mm -hmm. as you become like a more mature company running a startup is like being a wartime prime minister there's like wartime prime ministers and peacetime prime ministers and they both serve different different purposes and as you go from startup like you've always it's about action and it's about messaging and it's about like vision and it's about galvanizing everybody i think over the next few years as we move to peacetime hopefully <laughs> um it's about it's about putting the right structures in place um giving the right putting the right ownership in place um uh, refining the culture so you we will not be able to take all of what we are into the next four or five years but we can take some of the essence of what we are and instill that in uh, in all of the new people that start and into the the company and its culture um and I, and i actually think that it's 
or attractive to 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 stay as we are you know we we're a startup where we're running very very hot um you know everybody's kind of maxed out that's kind of the 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 culture and everybody loves it um well some more than others um <laughs> I, and i run and i run at the i run at my maximum as well um and that's a, a probably a um <clears throat> that's probably a cost to like you know my family life and things like that but fortunate enough that my my, my wife is uh, the most understanding woman in the world um but um it's not it's not attractive to to carry that it's not you, you in fact it's it's not sustainable it's good for a time but then you have to like normalize and so i i think for us it's about the normalization take distilling what we are not losing sight of what we are but then normalizing that over the next over the next 3 to 5 years into something that's like a real sustainable business nice almost refreshing outlook for yourself to have at the stage you are as well because a lot of people will try to retain that culture and try and hold on to what makes you guys special but actually realizing that you can't keep all of it and you want to keep the core elements and help that guide a future growth is definitely quite refreshing to hear as well but then as a leader as you do hit the scale and you want to keep those core elements how do you shape your organization in like a quantitative way like how do you measure your impact on culture and how do you deem it to be successful if you've implemented it in a meaningful way as well so it's a great question um so i think what we what we're installing at the moment is we're going through a, an okr process so we're doing objectives and key results and um and obviously you've got your financial performance and products and all that type of good stuff in there but one of the central um one of the central pillars is culture um and what i'm very interested in is um a systemic approach to culture to feedback and creating positive reinforcement and positive feedback loops like on a kind of a weekly monthly quarterly yearly basis so uh, we've got some we've got some plans going on right now um of which we have some uh, former house hack alumni uh, involved in around like creating a systemic approach to to culture and to driving like the right type of culture some of that is around i think these you know the ray dalio um ted talks which is around like transparency yeah, and, yeah. and then radical radical candor like i don't think that we're going to do radical candor in fact i don't again i don't think radical candor is for everybody i think sometimes it's good to have a conversation like behind closed doors and not just be super honest all of the time but that's just me um and and i'm an honest person but i just don't think that, that that's that that's gets you the the how do we like get feedback on our core beliefs and ensure that systemically we we're course correcting for for any types of behaviors that is pushing us away from those core beliefs and that's from people who from new starters providing me with feedback to um to you know senior managers um getting feedback and then having peer reviewed peer to peer sessions about how they could have done things better we want to promote a culture of continuous improvement and i think that is our culture it's like continuous improvement like honesty and, and continuous improvement is like the heart of what we do if we can nail that over the next 12 months like that will be 
like one of the single most important things out you know we do speech analytics products we do ai products we do all sorts of different products but nailing that culture piece will be is equally important yeah i think it will be too as well and as once you've got this culture down as you're getting there and you're kind of coming to define it and coming to understand what it means within your analysis how do you then use that in the recruitment for one but also in how you onboard new employees do they have to fit to your culture when they first join or can you shape them to it once they've already joined and especially if there's no one or if there's someone in your current organization that doesn't fit that culture you're trying to develop can they be morphed into it or would it have to be a conversation where you would remove people who didn't fit to it see this is why i'm not a good leader because i i don't have a great response for that so like i i believe that tmac should be a broad church a broad church of opinion a broad church of of diversity um a diversity of thinking actually and an environment where ideas are heard and and listened to with respect so i think in that regards we want to make sure that we get the right people in at the beginning who um who would data who would data that who would data that culture i think over the last you know 3 years we've had people come and go and i think the reason why they've come and gone isn't anything to do with like their core skill set i think it just came down to them not necessarily enjoying the way that we do things because of the way that we do it and so thus far i think that people who don't enjoy don't enjoy the hustle and don't don't enjoy the grind and don't want to exist in a world where you know we have challenging conversations they generally like leave anyway because that's just not for them and there's no hard feelings like some of the people who have left like i've got like a lot of respect for and like you know they've been part of they were part of our journey but they just didn't it was just culturally they just didn't fit um i think that becomes harder as you scale and there's more people but i think we've got the correct frameworks and controls in place i'm i'm fortunate that it's it's not just a leadership team of one i'm fortunate i think we've got like six other ceos like who are all like really really strong and are able to land the cultural message within each of their teams um and so i think for the for the the near term for the next sort of 24 months like i'm i'm very positive around like being able to instill and maintain like the the correct culture through the recruitment process and through the onboarding process after that who knows too far in the future cool so thinking about hierarchy we've spoken also about leadership and and culture really what does the future of leaders and leadership within the workplace look like what's that ideal that we should all be working towards so i don't know if it's around leadership per se but i think it's around creativity and what i'm seeing a lot of interesting people doing is 
bringing different types of people together to be creative. Now that could be creative with AI, it could be creative with, um, with people, it could be creative, you know, with solutions. It could be taking people from diverse sectors and, and putting them at a problem around uh, greenhouse gases or around like coronavirus or whatever. But I think it's around creativity. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So I was, I come from a creative field and I completely rejected like that creativity because I didn't, I thought that it wouldn't get me taken seriously. And then I did programming and data science um, because, because I wanted to be taken seriously. I think I've you know, said to people before, um, it's the clown who then wants to play Hamlet. So people act as a clown, they're a buffoon, and then all of them grow up and they want a serious role. Um, Michael Crawford, actually, he was in uh, he was he was in a, a sitcom and then played Phantom of the Opera, which I thought was quite so. That's a bit random, but um, I always see it a little bit a little bit like that. And and so I re I completely rejected that creative side of things, and I almost slept what sleepwalked into the fact that now all I do is creative stuff. I talk. I talk for a living and communicate, you know, I, I think around like complex problems and then draw them out for people. Like my ability as a programmer is relatively poor, but I think my ability as a solution provider and a problem solver is, is very good. And it's the problem solving aspect that's, that's going to be the challenge in the future. So robots, automation, AI will be able to do so much but in the, the next 10 years, 20 years, you're not going to be able to replace a human's ability to create. And leaders who can set a culture that promotes creation, those are the guys who will succeed. That can be creation of things or it be, can be create, creativity in terms of communication. I think those are the people who are going to see the huge benefits, especially over the next kind of 10 to 20 years, when, when a lot of people are distracted with automation, um, the, the, those that are promoting creativity will thrive. Yeah, I think that's a really good, almost vision for the next 10, 20 years. And I'd say I have to fundamentally agree with you on it, to be honest, because I think that's what makes us human. And even from a young person's perspective, thinking about the future their job role and their place within it we're almost told our generation is about okay make sure your job is future proof make sure that your work doesn't get taken up by ai and as much as we can think about doing that and trying to find job roles of fit by becoming a data scientist by becoming someone who creates the code it's also by realizing that okay some of my roles are going to be automated that's the nature of it they are repetitive tasks that i don't need to do day by day cool let's forget about them and focus on what makes us human. And that is the creativity. That is the ideas. That is the technology, the way in which we come up with different solutions to different challenges we face as a species from decades and centuries ago. And I think that really is going to play out across the next 
10, 20 years, almost the new revolution more than anything else of taking away automated repetitive work and replacing it with creative work where people are almost unstripped and able to actually do things that they're meant to be doing as humans rather than doing monotonous work that's repetitive and frankly boring to be honest so i think unleashing human potential is really where ai where automation can really fit in as well can i can i just just make two a couple of points you're absolutely spot on like data science data science will be automated like so when i was when my daughter was born i was like i wanted to be a data scientist i wanted to learn to code she's 11 years old now she's learning to code but everybody's going to code in the future data science is one of the things where if you can get perfect data sets you don't need anyone to smash the data together you don't need anybody to build the models everything would all fit perfectly and all of the decisions and stuff will be made so data science in it in itself is like you know massively problematic in that field um and so yeah i think that yeah as you said like the creative problem solving aspect um is hugely hugely valuable hugely valuable yeah definitely i don't try to bring in uh ryan what are your thoughts on that on the creativity side yeah it's a really interesting one for me because on your point there jimmy of everyone will code that sort of thing my half personal philosophy half uh kind of forcing myself down a certain route is kind of i've never really wanted to either i've always had that interest i've always had that want to understand how technology works and understand how i can use it but actually my personal point of view on that has always been i don't i don't want to learn to code i've learned languages before fantastic but applying it to coding languages completely different in in my head and, and maybe that's why my skill set won't be future proof like on what charlie was was talking about but i'm kind of running that risk at the moment and that's okay so for me and for anyone else kind of listening who's not the kind of yeah i'll learn anything type necessarily and of course learning new skills is super important and exposing yourself to new things equally as fulfilling my ambition and my really application of myself i guess goes in the other direction of that creative problem solving and saying okay well, what can i use my mind for in, in, in a different way that can still create outcomes that other people haven't seen or solve problems in a way that other people haven't expected and create outcomes for people that are just as as fulfilling no matter what kind of area or department that that is and, and particularly if that's in a team of people then then all the better so, yeah, I think my, my point of view would be that the techno side, the automation type side is something that everyone will have to learn within or learn to cope around, but not necessarily be able to dive in and, and do everything themselves, if that, if that makes sense. I, I completely agree. And I think this goes to like, a, there's, a weird, um, there's a weird thing that, go, that goes on in the market um, especially when it comes to programming and coding mm. and stuff, that kind of, it maybe speaks to what you're talking about here, which is, so there's a move towards low code or no yeah. code solution mm -hmm. for all of this stuff. Um, and so, you know, you can do, you know, RPA, um, but you don't have to code. You can just drag and drop stuff. You can do this, but you can just drag and drop stuff. And, um, you know, me and my CEO, George, talk about it. And it's like, yeah, but it's like, that's like playing a Casio keyboard and just pressing a button on the pre-programmed stuff. 
Like, whereas I don't need to pre, I don't need to low code or no code anything because it's quicker for me to program it than it is to just drag and drop things on a screen. Yeah. And there's a creativity in that, which then means that I can then go to no code and low code. I already understand like what I want to do and I can skip to it, but not knowing the fundamentals of it Mm. It's like not yeah. knowing your scales playing guitar or it's it, uh, it's you, you're playing piano it's creative what you do um and, and one of my friends i um it was the first time i met him it was like um it was like a boyfriend of a of um one of my my wife's friends and he said um he said what do you do and i said um i said oh i'm a programmer and he said oh, oh i couldn't do that i said why he goes oh i like working with my hands I'm like what do you think i program with <laughs> like, and and there is a creativity about what you what you're doing mm. and i think and i think not not knowing how to code i think uh, i did a I did a linkedin post the other day a bit provocative around leaders who don't code and not knowing how to code is, is not important but understanding your fundamentals around it um i think is important not not for any other reason that it unlocks ideas in your brain Mm. about how things can be done so yeah i'm not like a everyone should code kind of person anymore but i do think there's like what are the mechanics of the thing that you're trying to solve is important and then that stitches together with your, with your creativity yeah no definitely you got to know what what you're looking at you got to understand as a as a leader as a founder even as a as a young employee coming up through organizations you want to know what you're looking at even if you're not engaging with it in that more detailed way but our, our kind of final question for you really as we've spoken about that workplace of tomorrow that kind of future of leadership in in the workplace really what what do you want to see more from in terms of employees and employers kind of both sides of that coin to reach that workplace of tomorrow what are the the practicalities behind getting us getting us there i think from a, an employee's point of view i I want to see more, more openness. I think more, more openness to, um, to different voices and to different ways of thinking. Um, I, I do see a little bit of a move towards, uh, towards a view that there are fundamental things that are right and fundamental things that are wrong, and never the twain shall meet. And I don't think that that's a good thing for for society really i'll give you an uh, an example of that you know i'm a i believe a very liberal person but we should be able to we should be able to take into account like conservative views even though they're they may be diametrically opposed to the things that we feel and some things like i can be pr pretty shocked about you know from from a conservative stance but that doesn't mean that we need to we need to take impassioned stances against this type of stuff. And I do see like a lot of a lot of young people get very passionate about things. And I like the passion, but I feel as though like some of it is some of it is misplaced and misdirected. I can't remember who said it, but it somebody said like the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know. And being um being humble enough to understand that you don't really know anything you don't know any you don't know anything at all like the smartest person in the world knows hardly anything and, and coming at it from that perspective and understanding that 
how you build bridges between like different people, I think is important and not like siloing you, yourself away. And that's, and it's really, really hard because the truth is spiky and listening to other people that you don't agree with is difficult, but it's so much worth worthwhile because you start to see that we're more alike than apart in so many different areas. Um, so I see, and I, and I see that being a, being quite a challenge um, for for people as the as they're coming up, and then and then for leaders, uh, I think we still in so many aspects adhere to the old industrial revolution kind of um, structures around what we class as competence, what we class as um, what we class as being a good worker, what we class as the co the core competencies, and. I think we need to kind of smash through that. And, you know, for, for one, I do think that that type of view, it holds back like a lot of people from the workplace that would be absolutely fantastic. It was, it was interesting, actually, I was speaking to Nicola, our HR person, and we know that we've got a problem with, um, with gender. Like we've got a gender imbalance that some of that's from like we started a group of people we started a company with a group of people who we all knew and then and then that's come around and we're working hard on that and i said one thing that might be unattractive is because of the hours that we work because we work all all the time and nick went no that's fantastic because that means that i can work nine uh five o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock, then I can have the have the day off and then I can log back in like for a few hours at night. Like that's the flexibility that you yeah. get. And I think I, I never thought of it like that, but then I was like, oh, like, yeah, like, yeah, that's exactly what you could do. And like, nobody nobody would bat an eyelid at that. I think, in fact, I'm pretty sure- Thanks, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the guys <laughs> do that already. Um, so I think, yeah, understanding the roles of flexible working, unlocking potential, that is currently like not unlocked through like your working practices and like just a, a relentless focus on like creativity because you know post post automation like those are the that, that's the thing that's going to be most in demand nice yeah definitely agree with you there i think uh you've got a um a really good outlook on both employees and employers that really some great advice to take forward i think on on both elements so and that really concludes today's episode. So thank you guys for listening. But we'd, of course, love to hear your opinion on leadership within startups. Drop us a comment on the social posts and, of course, be featured in our future episodes as well. And yeah, I just want to thank you guys for listening. And, of course, thank Jimmy for, for joining us. It's been a really great episode. I've really enjoyed it. So yeah, you can find uh, Jimmy online uh, on LinkedIn or you can find TMAC at tmac.ai. And that will conclude the episode. That's it for today from the House Hack Podcast. The best place to find us is LinkedIn at Househack Events, the company page, and personally on LinkedIn at Ryan McGee and Real Charlie Rogers. We really appreciate your listening support. Leave us a review if you enjoyed our episode, and we'll see you the next one.